Welcome to this week's episode of the Music History Project. Today, we're talking about working with Leo Fender. All right. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mike. Hello. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I'm happy to be back here. We're having a very special podcast today about uh, those folks that we've interviewed that worked with Leo Fender. How exciting. Yeah. And uh, we've been uh, getting quite a bit of positive feedback from people out there listening to us. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to let us know that you're listening. And uh, just a reminder that today's episode is inspired by the collection of interviews that we have through our oral history program here at NAM. If you want to check out anything in our collection, make sure you go to our website at nam.org slash library. It's a Exciting to talk about Leo Fender today because he is, of course, one of the movers and shakers that really helped define the uh, music products industry in a lot of people's minds. When we are describing it, when I'm at Trader Joe's and meet somebody and try to tell them what I do, I usually say we represent um, the music products industry like guitars made by Fender and pianos made by Steinway. Most people grab onto that concept pretty quickly. So the fact that we are pausing uh, today to recognize this icon in our industry is very fitting. And it's quite an honor to uh, include those folks from the oral history program who actually knew Leo, worked with him, and uh, learned from him. Yeah, so we never had the opportunity to get Leo into the collection, but we have quite a few people that surrounded him and worked closely with him. So it gives us a decent representation of his work and his life. And so today we're going to be hearing from, let's see, one, two, three, four, six people that worked very closely with Leo. And the first is a man by the name of Dale Hyatt. And Dale worked with Leo very closely throughout the years as a kind of a marketing guy, right? Right. He was actually the very first person that Leo hired. We should probably back up and just give a quick little background on Leo uh, because I think it's important in listening to Dale uh, and his story. Uh, Leo was actually born in uh, Southern California in the orange groves of Orange County, uh, Anaheim and Fullerton area, and uh, grew up with a real love of country and Western music. Uh, so when he opened up a uh, radio repair shop in uh, uh, 1938 in Fullerton, what he uh, did in his spare time was hang out at the local bars and dives that had country music, country western swing uh, was his particular favorite type of music. And he started getting to know some of the, uh, the performers in and around the area several of which would stop and ask him uh, if he had any ideas how to fix their amplifiers. Um, and he, Leo, would take them back to the repair shop and work on them. And this, of course, is how the legend started of how Leo became involved with uh, tinkering and repairing uh, amplifiers, which led him to come up with concepts of improving them, which led to uh, the huge collection of products that the uh, Fender Company has offered over the years, including, of course, the Stratocaster uh, electric guitar, probably the most famous uh, musical instrument, certainly by shape, 
next to the piano in the uh, entire history of the world. So um, a great concept and very successful product. But Leo was always interested in the amplifier. In fact, always would say that his greatest contribution was that uh, surrounding amplifiers like the basement amp that came out later. Um, so it's kind of interesting to know that that's sort of where it all started with him. So as he was expanding and people were asking more and more of him, he decided that he needed some help. So he hired a young kid named Dale Hyatt. And um, Dale was born in 1925. Uh, he passed away in 2013. And uh, we had a chance to interview him. So we'd love to play some of that for you. What segment are we going to play first? Looks like we're going to talk about Dale meeting Leo Fender and getting hired. And I went down to uh, um, employment service, and uh, this they had a guy building guitars, one thing or another. So, so I went down and met Leo Fender, and got an interview there, and uh, got hired. Hmm. And. Um, so the wife and I decided to go ahead and get married. So we got married that went into Huntington Beach, California with her aunt and uncle and, and got, got married that uh, the night before I went to work for him. Okay. On January the 15th, I, um, we were married. And on January the 16th, I went to work for, uh, and that was 1946, I went to work for Leo Fender. And, uh, <laughs> So that was the start of it. Now, musically, um, uh, my, my talents in music is very little. I couldn't carry a tune in a baby blanket. So uh, um, I, even though I was in the glee club in, in high school and one thing or another, my voice changed, everything else changed. I couldn't tell whether I was hitting the right note or not. <laughs> so so uh, I could listen to it. And I could hear uh, the on and off, you know, right. but I couldn't tell when I was doing it myself. Mm. So I just gave it up as far as uh, I tried to play the guitar and all I got was sore fingers and uh, <laughs> still trying to figure out if I was doing right or not, you know. So, but when we first started, all, all we made in the Fender organization was, uh, was that basically in the beginning was uh, laptop steel guitars. Mm. And uh, Leo had this, um, or I call it better, say Mr. Fender had this radio shop. In the back of it, he had a kind of a tin shed built on the back for storage. And there is where the, he started out building uh, guitars and the laptop steels. So while we were listening to that clip, uh, we did some fact-checking and double-checked uh, when Dale's interview was conducted, and it was in 2007. So if you were just sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for that little factoid, there it is, rest easy. It's really neat to me is that uh, thanks to so many people who have helped us locate these folks over the years, we do have a collection that includes the first guy that ever was hired by Leo Fender. I think that's really, really neat um, because it helps build this story of this gentleman who really came um, out of nowhere to become very uh, innovative in the music products industry. And along the way, you'll realize, as we'll hear from other folks that worked with him, that it wasn't just Leo, it was definitely a team effort. And there was a lot of uh, very clever and innovative and pioneering folks that worked side by side with Leo. 
Yeah, so let's hear the conclusion of uh, Dale's impressions of Leo as well as kind of meeting him and getting his foot in the door at Fender. He was a gentleman in a way. Um, I always felt he was kind of a uh, kind of a recluse. He never let himself go unless something tickled him. And then when if he get to really laughing, that's when he opened up and he was a real human being, you know. But I uh, I became as I got to know him, I got more and more fond of him all the time. He was. Uh, um, like like all of us, we all have our problems, or we think somebody else has got one. Maybe when it's our own, and uh, it doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to us. Is the problem. So um, I uh, I appreciated his his intelligence, uh, his perseverance more than anything, um, in order to get a job done, and uh, he believed in himself. Um, a lot of other people might not have, but he believed in himself. And uh, I met him at the time when Doc Kaufman was first there. And uh, I remember they were working on a, um, a, magnet, a magnetic record changer. And the thing worked. I wish I had kept it. I had one of them, and I don't know why I get, let it get away from me. but. So it definitely sounds like Leo was the kind of guy who plays it pretty close to the chest, a little reserved, and then as you get to know him more and he begins to trust you and you guys develop that relationship, then he opens up and you kind of really get to know who he is. That's the impression I got from Dale. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see Leo being the kind of guy that's just really into his work and his craft and kind of just keeps to himself. We hear stories every once in a while about... um, Leo is going to a uh, a club or a um, a musical venue with a uh, small little flashlight in his pocket, and uh, any chance he got to uh, look inside amplifiers and you know see what the gear was and uh, understand what the competition was doing, and you know so quiet sort of uh, you know engineer nerdy type of person, um, but uh, as you guys said, he built some lifelong friendships. Uh, George Fullerton's another one that comes to mind of uh, someone that really was very close to Leo over the years. Yeah, so right at the end of that last clip, uh, Dale mentions the name Doc Hoffman, and so we're going to hear him go into a little bit more detail about working with and his impressions of Doc Hoffman, but for those of us, including myself, who don't know who that is, uh, either of you guys give us a little background. Well, Doc worked there in the uh, factory with Leo. He was really the guy who came up with a lot of um, the processes that made it easy for people to repair the Fender guitars. For example, that neck adjustment was all about Doc. In fact, uh, speaking of that, the, uh, the brace in which Doc used to set the Fender necks in place is currently on loan at the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, California, along with some tools, hand tools, that Leo used in the workshop, just as a side. But anyway, Doc was a very uh, innovative and uh, coveted employee of Leo, uh, certainly in the early years. He was a teacher, music teacher, and um, uh, he taught guitar lessons. And um, he also made, made instruments, made a few of them. 
And um, he, he also was a, an intelligent man uh, and very humorous. And uh, um, I've got some pictures around here someplace of him with, in his last, uh, last student and this young thing that he had to see something else. <laughs> It was kind of, it's kind of grandfather and granddaughter, you know. But uh, he was still teaching Clure up until later years, and he'd come by and visit every now and then. And uh, uh, he was an enjoyable fellow to be around, you know. Now they actually formed the company together. They they did, and uh, Doc got to thinking, what are you going to do with all these guitars? You know, he got to, it got to be too big for him, and uh, he was leery of of what might happen and didn't want the indebtedness and in a way he was right because um, things were real bad for Leo for quite a long time I, I know because when I was working for him and and um, I was the only person left in the plant and uh, the banks were trying to foreclose on him and he was hiding out a day and we'd work at night and radio and television equipment company Francis Hall was uh, um, had financed Leo a little, I think, uh, to help out. And, um, uh, of course, he wanted every, every piece of merchandise that Leo built, you know, had to go through him. And then he got to holding up payments on uh, if something wasn't right. Or, and I don't know the true facts of all of this, except that um, uh, Leo didn't like Francis Hall too well you know, after years went by. Mm -hmm. And and when uh, Leo was in the record and, and radio business, uh, he purchased a lot of um, supplies through the radio and television equipment company in Santa Ana. Uh, they were on South Oak Street over there. And Don Randall was working for Francis Hall right after the war, and he was one that called on Leo. That's how they came to be known. How uh, they got together. So besides uh, Doc Hoffman, Charlie Hayes is another name that Dale brings up along the way. And Charlie Hayes was? The first real sales rep for the company. Um, we kind of went a little bit out of order when we were talking about uh, Doc. Doc came a little bit later. Really the sort of the three first f um, founders, if you will, the, the first three of Fender Corporation was uh, Leo Fender. Uh, Don Randall and Charlie Hayes, and a little bit later on, um, Doc Hoffman and the expansion into the factory occurred, and then you hear more about Freddie Tavares and folks like that. Um, but Leo, Don, and uh, Charlie were really sort of the uh, the three that got this company off the ground, expanded it, uh, created a factory, created a uh, a workforce. And uh, with Charlie's help, they expanded to have sales reps on the road going and calling on dealers. He was the first one to do so for uh, Fender. In fact, uh, over the years, we have been blessed to interview some retailers who remember Charlie coming and opening up their store as Fender dealers throughout the United States. So it's kind of fun to have some of that history going way back. Unfortunately, Charlie passed away in the early 50s in an automobile accident while he was on the road. Um, and cer certainly uh, after that, uh, the company um, was uh, looking for someone to replace him. And as a result, there a whole team of people 
came out. Dale Hyatt, who had been helping sort of Leo as a side man uh, working in a factory, was asked to expand his duties and go out on the road, which he did. They also hired a country and western star, uh, Billy Carson, who uh, went out on the road. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the the magical uh, elements of the success of the Fender Company in the early days, in my estimation, is the fact that they were incorporating musicians to help them get the word out about these instruments, uh, using them as product endorsers for for lack of a better term, before they were using them in advertisements, they were going around to these clubs and saying, hey, try this instrument. What do you think of this? And getting feedback and ideas that would help them uh, create and modify the uh, products that they were working on. Probably the most famous is uh, Billy Carson uh, taking that big slab of wood, as they called it, and uh, saying, oh, this is neat, but it's cutting into my ribs. Can you uh, contour it a little bit around uh, this side and cut it this way and cut it that way? And the shape of the Stratocaster appeared. Um, so those are the kind of things that help uh, progress the, the company for sure. And uh, so Charlie was very important in that early uh, stage, as well as uh, Don Randall, who we'll be hearing from a little bit later on as well. All right. So let's listen to Dale Hyatt speaking about Charlie Hayes, reflecting on Charlie, as well as we're going to transition right after that into when Dale uh, jumped in and spent some time on the road helping out with sales. Charlie Hayes? Yeah, I remember Charlie quite well. He... Uh he was a very, very good salesman. He could sell you a set of false teeth that you would need when you were 50, if you were 24. And <laughs> he was that good. I mean, he, he, uh, he had a way and everybody was his friend. I mean, he was one of these kind of guys could walk into a bunch of strangers and they would all love him by the time he left. That just, that was Charlie Hayes. That's the way he was. And he wasn't easy to follow out on the road. Man, uh, I heard more stories about what he had promised different guys and everything else, and, uh, and I couldn't live up to those, you know. So finally, I just learned to pass it off. And, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't be Charlie Hayes, and I wasn't going to be. So, and when I realized that and started doing my own thing, I became a lot more successful in selling than, than trying to appease everybody and what they had been promised, you know. So the promises ended when Charlie died. And, uh, and maybe he did promise all these things, I don't know. The man wasn't there to back it up. <laughs> so, so I didn't have anybody to go to. So you basically took his position. Then. Right. Right. And did you do a lot of traveling? That was in 1955, right. I went on the road. And uh, in, in about June, I think, in 1955, I went on the road traveling for the Fender sales. Yeah. What sort of places did you go to? I had uh, started off with three states and then inherited two more. Uh, I started off with Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. And then Tommy Walker didn't want... Uh, uh, New Mexico and um, um, let's see, it wasn't, wasn't there at all because he kept that. Well, anyhow, the five states I had was 
Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado was the one he did, and New Mexico is where I uh, spent my time. And that was a lot of driving. And you only get paid the commissions if you called on these accounts once every 90 days. That was the thing that was set up. And if a dealer sent in an order and you hadn't been there in 90 days, you didn't get paid for commission on it. So you had to move. There was no time for golf. There was no time for anything on that on the road. You didn't make any money in the automobile or in the motel. The only thing you made to use both of them was conveniences to get to the next dealer. <laughs> so, what kind of car did you have then? I started off with driving a, a, a Mercury, which um, carried all kinds of samples and everything. I had it loaded, and then I found out you had to unload it every night in the motel room where it'd get stolen, you know. So I was loading and unloading all the time and, uh, and traveling, you know, uh, down the highway at 90 miles an hour to get to the next one, so. But that all started out in a 54 Mercury station wagon. And then I, uh, I got rid of that later on and bought a 56 Lincoln and um, it might have even been a 55, I can't remember exactly, but I had Lincolns all the rest of the way, all the time that I stayed in sales until I, I retired uh, uh, from sales in, after CBS bought the company. I left in um, 1972, I think it was. It just got, this guy Bull they hired in as um, uh, vice president of sales didn't know he came from um, a piano manufacturer, and uh, his mother was uh, a story, and his dad, his dad's name was Bob Bull. Of course, this was Bob Bull Jr., and uh, he was, I guess, quite a background in music, but he, had, he didn't have any personality. It, it, he, everybody that he met, he made mad, including me. He came out to travel with me, see if I knew what he did. And after three dozen, I took him to the airport and said, here's where you go home. <laughs> so he said, what do you mean? I said, it's not safe to travel with me anymore. <laughs> so, did, his, did his dad get involved? Hmm? Did his dad, did you ever have involvement with his dad? With his dad? No, I never met his father at all. Never, I just know that that day was his name, yeah. and um, and I never met his mother. I never met any of his family. Mm. Um, but he was um, he was a friend of the guy that came in and took over the position of um, um, prior to McLaren. Um, I, I don't remember his name offhand, but he was. Um, He, he was a, a great piano man also, and he, he brought Bull in as a, as a friend deal, you know. So I'd remember the name down the line, if I was in, but he wasn't there long enough either. And Bull made it more of an impression than, uh, than the, the president of the sales did.
So that's all we're going to hear from Dale Hyatt in this podcast. And now we're going to hear from someone new, Babe Simone. Dan, what can you tell us about Babe? Well, Babe was the uh, the product manager for Fender in the early days. Uh, he was born in 1937, passed away in uh, 2014. And I believe we interviewed him in 2010 uh, in Anaheim, California. But Babe has a great perspective because he was in the factory probably longer than just about anybody else in Fullerton. And um, so it was a real treat to have the chance to uh, glean from him his experiences at Fender and his relationship with Leo. And fun fact, he was a second generation Fender employee. His dad worked in the factory as well and helped him get a job there. That is a fun fact. I know. That's fun. Uh, So we're going to start hearing from Babe where he reflects on getting his job, how he went about getting his job. And in this case, not so much meeting Leo, but meeting one of Leo's partners, George. There's there's so many things to tell you about Fender that it's almost impossible to to get it all in in a half an hour or 20 minutes. Uh, I started working there in 53 and uh, my father worked there before I did and he worked in a what they call a cabinet shop where they made the amplifier boxes and uh, he was there probably for about a year and he had a stroke and within that year they was working there he had talked to a young man by the name of George Fullerton and says uh, told him that his son was becoming of age needs to find a job you got anything for him and he says, when he gets old enough to work, tell him to come in. Well, meanwhile, my father had the stroke, and we left uh, California, went back to Connecticut for uh, family reasons. And uh, couldn't find any work over there, so we came, I came back out here with my parents. And I walked from Anaheim to Fullerton and back at the post office. That's where they first started, Fender. And I went up to a gentleman wearing an apron, asked him if he was doing any hiring. And he points to the guy with a white shirt working on a drill press. And I, you know, who am I to know? I thought I'd ask somebody that was working. I I didn't know he was gonna wear a white shirt. And I told him who I was and everything. And he says, uh, well, I tell you what, he says, you came in on Monday, which was, uh, just had to go through the weekend and we'll find something for you to do. And that's when I went to work for him. That Monday, I think it was uh, May 17th, 1953. And... Uh, that was Leo in the white shirt? That was George Fullerton. Oh. And, uh, which I hadn't met. And I, that's my first uh, meeting with him. Even though Babe was hired by George Fullerton. He met Leo a little bit after he started. We're going to hear from Babe about meeting Leo and when he crosses paths with him for the one of the first times while at the factory. I hadn't met Leo Fender until uh, after about eight months I'm working at the company down there. I see this guy walking by, but I don't know who he is. And <laughs> they uh, give you a, a short story. The funny thing about it was that... Uh, when you were assigned on a certain job and you completed it for the day and you got done early, they would try to have you put your eight hours in so they would transfer you into another department. And one particular day I got transferred into the stock room and the stock clerk told me that I had to deliver some boxes to the building number one 
for the assembly area. So I said, okay. So I get one of these uh, uh, dollies and hand truck, is what I call it, and I load it up. And I loaded up pretty high, though it it was kind of almost over my head. But as you pull down, you can see over it. And uh, I got the thing loaded, and I told him I was going down building one, and I go out the little door that's leading out of the warehouse, and I almost run over this guy. And he he jumps and he steps back about three steps, and he says, "Don't you think you could probably?" Um, handle that a little bit better if you didn't take quite as much. And in those days I was always hot and quick with my tipper. And I said, if you think you can do better than me, why don't you just take it down to building one? And the guy scratches his head and turns around and walks away. I get done building one, come back up. Stock clerk says, what the heck did you do? I says, what? Don't you know that guy you were talking to, nasty, out there? That's Leo Fender. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't know who he was. He was wearing his Hawaiian shirt and his little uh, tools on the side of his uh, belt, his screwdriver and pliers. I said, I didn't know who he was. And then uh, a couple of days later, I, same thing. I ran out of work. They transferred me to the machine shop. So I'm working there on a drill press and drilling these holes on there. Somebody's standing behind me. And I turn around, I says, haven't you got anything better to do besides stand there staring at me? He says, boy, you are a hot-tempered little cocky son of a gun, aren't you? And I said, I really don't mean to. I says, but it just comes out that way when somebody's staring at me. <laughs> and we got along fine. We just, he was just the salt of the earth, that guy. He was really good. I, I was just young and didn't know any better. I was probably, that particular time, I was probably, uh, uh, probably about 17 years old and uh, wasn't allowed to handle uh, real heavy-duty equipment because of my age. So they put me on light duty in a drill press and pushing a broom and stuff like that besides my regular job was uh, hand sanding. And I used to sand all the guitar bodies that they put out, me and several other gentlemen. But working at Fender was a dream. It really was. It was uh, a joy to get up in the morning and go to work. And I had 20 years in the place, and I still enjoyed all of that. All the years I worked there, I enjoyed every one of them. I enjoyed going to work. There was a lot of things that happened after they sold to CBS that shouldn't have happened, but they did happen. And uh, it was just uh, George Fulton was uh, Leo Fender's right-hand man. And George was uh, very good to all the employees. Uh, he made a point to make the rounds in the morning. He was director of manufacturing. Make the rounds in the morning and have a little couple words with everybody, you know, as individually. And then he would go on to do his daily work. And uh, Leo Fender used to do the same thing. Come walking through the shop and you know, come up to me and say, "Hey, babe, how you doing?" And I said, "Okay." He said, uh, get that lawn put in yet at your house? I said, no, I'm working on it. He says, I'll tell you how to do it so it won't be too much work for you. Stuff like that, you know. He was just uh, really good people. Mm. And uh, the work was enjoyable and it was rewarding. I, uh, I, I met a lot of people working there. I, and uh, it's funny because I uh, actually started working on the line 
uh, as a hand sander. And, and I got my promotions as years went by. I, I, I was in charge of uh, the acoustic section for uh, about a year. And then uh, they had somebody from Dobro, uh, guitarist, that wanted to work there and mostly acoustic. And uh, so I was replaced and I got sent back to electric guitars. And I was an electric guitarist for a few years and then eventually I ended up uh, product manager over the string instruments. And uh, the people that I worked with on the line, side by side, were working under my directions now and we got along just super. It was really great. I learned one thing that you treat everybody as individuals. You don't treat them as a whole and put everything in, in one pot. You, you, you got to let the person do his own thing. Mm -hmm. And I used to get along really fine with them, every, every one of them. I uh, felt bad when I left, had a lot of tears. I had 20 years in there and I worked for uh, 20 different department heads. Uh, over the years, and I was averaged out about one a year. Got to the point where I used to lay odds with them, come in and introduce himself to me, and my new uh, immediate, you know, and I says, uh, "Hi, I'm pleased to meet you." He says, "I understand you lay odds." I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "How long do you think I'm going to be here?" I said, "Well, just off the top of my head, I say 18 months, and I think it was uh, about two weeks off." <laughs> he come in and saw me before he left the last one. He says, I can't believe you do that. He says, that's the way it's been running here with CBS. And um, I, they had people like in quality control. They had, um, are you familiar with the name Bill Carson? Yeah. And what's he doing? Is he dead? Yeah, he passed away a couple of years ago. I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, he was in charge of the string line uh, when I was still a uh, snotty-nosed kid. And uh, uh, that's too bad. But uh, he was in charge of quality control, and he, I was in charge of string instruments then, doing his job. But I don't know how, what his connection was in Mahogany Row or what, but he comes in one day and he's got a Telecaster. Well, the Telecaster, uh, the pickups after they were wound, they wind them and then they seal them and, uh, and uh, they wrap them with string and they seal them in wax with lamp black in it. Well, I eliminated the lamp black. The lamp black. You know what lamp, lamp black is? It's a pigment. Uh, if you take a, a, a piece of tin, and you know, with the pliers and put a flame underneath it, and then you move the flame away and look at it. Is that black soot? Mm. To me, and you probably soot would be there to say what it is, but they call it lamp black. And you put that in the wax to color the wax so that when you seal it, the wax looks black. But it wasn't really a dense black, but it was showed some black. And he said the instrument never, never sounded good after that was done. He says, it's, it's the worst thing that ever happened, and they should fire the guy that did that. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to take it down there and take the string off and redo that pickup with lamp black. I said, okay. So instead of that, I 
called the supervisor over and said, here, I gave him five bucks and says, go down to the yardage store and get some black string and bring it back. So he went and brought it back and said, wind that thing and put the clear wax on it, put it back in the instrument, set it up front. And there he was. He says, boy, this thing sounds good. It never sounded better in, in your life. He says, it's a great tone to it. Listen to that. Look at that plant black. That's what's doing it. Lamp black doesn't have any, it doesn't conduct electricity or anything, it's just a coloring. And uh, I said, that's black string. Well, he about wet his pants. He really got upset with me for doing that. I said, well, you told me you're going to throw me the hell out of here for doing something that I thought was good because that black stuff would get it all over the place. It was all over during the day, you know, the girls would get on our hands and transmit it to something else, and oh boy. And uh, <laughs> so they started wrapping it with black string, and he thought that, well, he, he accepted it, he accepted it. And uh, you know, because on the, uh, on the uh, telly, the uh, one pickup where the bridge is at, you know, and uh, when they take the cover off on the body, you can see all that inside of there where the pickups at, if you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it went and let, I don't know what they're doing now, if they use a lamp black again or what. But, uh, you know, and then I used to keep in touch with a lot of my people I, I used to work with. And I, I get, I get kind of nervous about looking them up anymore because, like I said, you know, they pass on. And, uh, but, Leo Fender turned out a one heck of an instrument, and it's the people that made it, the people that worked for him that, that really enjoyed working for him. And I, he didn't just treat me great, he treated everybody the same, treated everybody good. I never heard him, uh, George Fullerton or Leo Fender use any profanity. I've never heard him uh, chastising anybody. And, uh, you know, never heard him talking hateful about anything or anybody. Just uh, such great teachers of how to conduct yourself as a human being. And I don't, I don't think you find those people anymore. I don't know if you do. I, uh, you know, I've turned this operation I'm at right now into a one-man show. That way I don't have to deal with people that I don't like. And there's, believe me, there's a lot of them out there. So now we're going to talk about um, kind of the heart of Fender, which is the products. And, and Fender is definitely well known for everything that they've put out from the Stratocaster to the Telecaster, um, the Precision Bass, and the Bassman being a couple of their... Um, very well-known products that they've put out over the years. So now we're going to hear uh, Babe talking a little bit about what it was like working on the Strat and the Tele, um, as well as some other projects. You started in 53, so you were around when, um, were they already starting the Stratocaster at that point, or oh, that yeah. came later? I made many of Strats. No, that was... Um it probably, I, I just off the top of my head, it probably uh, in the 60s, probably the 60s. 
And what about the precision bass? Did you have a? I had a guy come that? in. I had a guy come in here on. Uh, you're talking about the the square one, the one that looked like the telly. Yeah. Well, I had a guy from England come in and see me. In fact, there's uh, there's a there's, if you want his name, it's it's on that cardboard up there on the on this shelf right over here. Uh, he sent me uh, a letter, and uh, the telly, uh, the last five uh, telly, let's take it back, precision bass, the last five, the square ones, might have been six. We run off of that thing. Uh, with a fiberboard pickguard on it. Hmm. It, didn't have the, it didn't have the vinyl pickguard, it had a fiberboard. Fiber, Fiberboard. We used to sand them on lacrimose. And a little peanut that you thumb for your thumb, oh, yeah. that was made out of uh, wood back in the old days. Now they're plastic, I think. And that was, uh, I think I ran, I was hand sanding. I sanded the pick guards for him and I sanded the, the last five or six. And uh, that's when he converted over to the new precision base. And that was probably done in. Uh, 50, 55, probably during that time there. And uh, we got the, uh, the, uh, was it Fender uh, Mustang? Oh, yeah. That was developed when I was there. And, uh, oh, are you familiar with a student? The student, uh, I used to get drunk working on that thing. <laughs> they, they, uh, I didn't know that they, they, what they would do is that they had this, the plastic, look like mother pearl. Remember, you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And they would put it on a, uh, they had like a tub and they had acetone and stuff in it. And they apply a little bit of heat to it. And they take the plastic and set it over the chicken wire. And they get all limbered up and that's just the way you would get too. And you take these and you lay it on the instrument and you stretch it around it. It just folds all around the thing and then you cut the excess off the bottom. And then we used to have a, a little box that had a lot of felt in it. And uh, they, they call it, I think they call it uh, flux or something like that. And they would put that on the bottom side of it. And I think they made those in 53, 54, and I didn't see any more. That was it. Really? I don't, in fact, that was just, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night doing guitars. <laughs> and I remember when I first learned how to put the uh, double neck string uh, steel guitar, double neck. And I used to drill the hole half from one side and half from the other side and bolt the thing together. And I remember doing those, and we didn't do too many of them. We didn't do too many at all. We started going into the single neck stuff. Hmm. And I remember that, uh, familiar with that plexiglass uh, steel guitar that Alvino Ray played? Oh, yeah. I made that. No kidding. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, and I was uh, really sweating bullets when I was doing it, too, because it, it, that piece of plexiglass is pretty expensive and I just did the cutting on it and it was sent someplace else to be buffed out but that f never did function you know they, they dubbed in the sound 
Oh, is that right? That's what he told me. Really? They tried to get it to, to work, but it didn't. It was, they say it was completely different than working with uh, wood. Hmm. So, uh, how about the Paisley? Paisley? Familiar with the Paisley? Oh, yeah, right. They couldn't get the stuff to stick. What they would do is put the, uh, it was wallpaper. They put it on, uh, on the instrument with uh, lacquer. They put a coat of lacquer on it and put the uh, paper over it and let it dry so it adhere it to the. And guess what happens when you put another coat over it? It reactivates what's underneath it because it goes right to the paper and come off again. I took care of that problem for them. Uh, on the acoustic guitars, they used to have a fracture that came in the neck slot. That was one of my easiest fix, fixes I ever done to the, for the instrument. And uh, Roger Rossmeyerson was the one who designed the, uh, the, uh, that acoustic for Leo. And he, uh, when I was put in charge of the acoustics, that kind of left him out in the cold. And he got really upset when I, when I fixed the uh, block that the neck screwed down to. And all I did was take a, a, a broom handle and cut it the thickness of the instrument and drilled a hole the same size and then inserted it in that block so that when you put the four screws into the neck, it didn't squish the spruce block. <laughs> and you couldn't believe that fixed it, but it fixed it. So he started doing all the, all the ones that way. But he got mad at me for doing that. Oh, he was, he got terribly mad at me. And uh, uh, he ended up, I, 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 had to, I had to go over to the main plant one, one day. And I, I, uh, when I took over the acoustic department, they already had all these people hired in. They're already hired in. I didn't end up not doing them except introduce myself as their leader. Hmm. And I had to go to the main plant, and I was gone for about like six hours, and I came back and all my people were drunk. He went out and bought a couple cases of beer. I said, I don't believe this. What are you doing to me? And uh, I just told him, I said, everybody clock out and go home, see you tomorrow, hopefully. And. Uh, we had a pretty good rapport after that. I guess he used to, he got personally involved with everybody. Like he used to loan him money and mm -hmm. and buy him beer on Fridays and stuff like that. Well, I, I couldn't do that because I was I was representing Leo, you know, and I, I didn't want to make things bad for him. And I, everything turned out pretty good. And by the time the guy from Dobro came down, everything was going pretty good. But uh, Ross Meisel used to go in the finish department, and every time he saw a flaw in one of the uh, instruments, he would take a, uh, a pencil and put a little little mark by it. Well, the painters come in in the morning; they're not they don't think that Ross Meisel's going through their their uh, stuff in the finish department. You know, it's already got maybe a coat of paint on it. And they start spraying him. We end up with pencil marks on either finish. And I said, oh, don't believe this. Who's doing this? And he admitted to doing it, but we had to end up stripping a bunch of stuff. And 
uh, if you remember the Wildwood acoustic? Oh, yeah. Uh, the guy that worked in that department, uh, I didn't know it, but he was colorblind. That's why we had some come out with mixed match colors. <laughs> and uh, it was one day we were sitting there and he just kind of told me what his, what his problem was. And I finally realized, because I used to get him in his case almost every day, like, why didn't you put this color with that color? What's the matter with you? And I found out he was colorblind. But uh, we also used to do the uh, Coronado. Coronado was a not good. It didn't work out well at all. And we put the binding on it and uh, come back in the morning and uh, take all the wrapping off and the binding be on there. And we take our scrapers and scrape the binding down so it, it fits in. And uh, two days later, the binding would be pulling off. It would start to release itself. And I kept on telling Forrest White, because I used to have to answer to him. I said, I can't work with this stuff. Is it, does, does it stay on there? The glue's no good or the, or the vinyl's no good? He says, that's what you got to work with? Work with it. Eh. So I, I took it upon myself to write a letter to the company that supplied us with the uh, material. And I said, you're using the wrong material. The guy who manufactures it tells me I'm using the wrong material. He said, the material is made for signs. It uh, expands and contracts according to the weather. He says, you'll never get it to stick. And that's why we changed. But I couldn't get that until I stuck that letter in front of his nose. He wouldn't let me change. It's always great hearing Babe tell these stories. I mean, there's a guy who certainly had the first-hand accounts of uh, those early days at Fender and the development of some amazing products that continue to uh, inspire people to become music makers. I think it's a, a fantastic perspective. Another guy that was there at the early days that we mentioned earlier is Don Randall, who was really the business side to Leo and was the gentleman who started the ad campaigns and started the contracts uh, with the dealers. He's the gentleman who came up with a lot of the names of the instruments, uh, like Stratocaster and Telecaster, for example. So Don played a really important role. Uh, I think he had sort of a, uh, a love-hate relationship with Leo, uh, especially uh, after the, uh, the sale of the company to CBS in the 1960s. But it was certainly a very important partnership that both gentlemen recognized at various parts of their career. We had an opportunity to uh, sit down with, uh, with Don Randall, um, and uh, we'd love to share a little bit of that uh, interview with you here. So here's Don talking about reflecting on his work within Fender and some of the products and ideas he worked on, as well as strategy when it comes to products. So you have quite a reputation of creating things that people have really enjoyed and have used. Well, it's been enjoyable doing it. It hasn't been a chore at all. Mm. And of course, it's uh, given me a vast acquaintanceship around the, around this part of the world, in fact. Uh, I had friends all over Western Europe, all over actually clear to uh, to uh, Turkey as far as that goes mm. and down into Africa and all over I uh, of course had friends over in the islands 
but I never did get down to the uh, other part of the world. Really? Never got to Australia or... Uh, well, last time I was here, you had showed me some things that you had put together in your folders on, um, and, and had offered to make copies of some things for me. And one of the things that sticks out in my mind that I'd love to, to have a picture of is the... Um, if I remember correctly, it was a uh, Fender violin. It never went bef beyond the uh, first sample. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a cute little thing. And uh, Leo, he's, I think we got kind of cross with each other on that because I was determined that thing was going to come out, and he was determined it wasn't, and as a consequence, it didn't. <laughs> hmm. Why was he so adamant against it? Uh, I think the main thing was he didn't like the way the, uh, the head on the uh, neck worked. Really? He just didn't feel it, uh, he thought it was too heavy into this and to that. And, and he just wouldn't wouldn't do anything with it. Wouldn't do anything with it. He, I think he, I think what he did. I think was he and I argued so much about. It, I think he just got his his uh, thinking out of shape, and then decided I'm not going to do it. Mm. And so it didn't happen. But it was really a pretty nice violin. I think it might have been a little heavy, you know, out here with those metal uh, uh, mm. uh, the pegs and all that. Yeah. yeah. But it would be interesting to see how the company reacted to such a diverse product. It would be real, real interesting, but. Uh, he just refused to go any further with it, and we hit, locked horns on it a number of times. And, and uh, because he had to do it, he won. <laughs> <laughs> Was there any other products that you could think of like that violin that would have been so different from the rest of the product line that you guys had considered? I don't think so. The, uh, the electric bass, was a little bit different, but uh, it was such a unique instrument that uh, and liked so well. But the rest of the that's the items that uh, they all turned out to be pretty much the same. Mm. He was pretty proud of that bass, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all were because it, uh, we sold a lot of them. And uh, it was a lot easier, it seems like, for a guy to manipulate the thing and, and to drag him around. That was a big uh, standard type bass. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you couldn't get, if you had a full-size bass, you couldn't get it in the car. You couldn't do anything with it, hardly. Yeah, completely different. Also, I think that with rock and roll coming around, people really were looking for something that could be uniquely their generation. Probably, yeah. 
But as I heard, and I think you confirmed that, that Leo didn't like rock and roll. He was a country music He's guy. country and western, yeah. He, <laughs> How he about you? Well, I was pretty well, uh, I think, pretty well versed in all phases of music. I, I didn't have anything that I liked particularly better than others, and, and uh, I liked the country western, I liked the modern stuff, and I liked even the semi-classical stuff that we were doing. So again, that was Don Randall, who was uh, Leo's right-hand man in the early days of managing the Fender Corporation as it was developing. Uh, Don, by the way, we didn't mention earlier, was born in 1917 and passed away in 2008. Uh, Don was also very important in um, collaborating with artists and performers. And I wanted to just mention that there were a few of the... um, musicians tied to Fender that we have been able to interview as part of the oral history program that we will not be hearing from in this podcast, but wanted to make you aware of. Uh, Speedy West, for example, the great pedal steel player who went on the road as a salesman for Fender, uh, was a gentleman that we were able to interview. Bobby Guitar Bennett, uh, James Burton, known very famously for playing the Telecaster uh, with Ricky Nelson in the early days of his career. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, Reggie Young, and uh, Johnny Smith. Uh, so uh, check those out. Their uh, web clips are available on the NAM uh, website, and I think you might just uh, get a kick out of learning a little bit more about those guys. Where are we off to next? We're going to hear next from Abigail Yabara. And she, this is something we find so fascinating here, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the NAM Resource Center and everything we do on our day-to-day. Abigail has the second most watched interview clip of all time in the program. That's right. That's correct. So, Out of the 3,000-something, 300 posted. Yeah. She has the second most. I mean, put take that in because most people do not know her name. Right. I was going to say, if you're out there and you're listening and you're a guitar player and you're, if you know a lot about Fender, you probably know who she is. But if you are not a guitarist, you probably are like, who is that? Because that was me. I was like, I don't, okay, who? You would think it would be some of our more uh, kind of celebrity quality style interviews, Stevie Wonder or BB King. King. You'd think they'd be number one for sure just because there's that cross-platform uh, marketing strategy. Everybody knows who those guys are. But nope, Abigail beats them all, with the exception of one other individual. Abigail beats them all. So, Mike, do you want to give those who are unfamiliar a brief background of Abigail? Why is she so big? Well, as far as I know, um, Abigail is pretty famous when it comes to Fender guitars. Um, she is, was the a, uh, pickup winder for Fender and Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was there for f- about 50 years That's working right. at Fender, yes. winding pickups. Mm. And it became kind of this fascination, uh, kind of like a following with with who is winding your pickups. And, and Abigail's always seemed to come out sounding better, having better tonal qualities. And as far as I know from watching her interview, um, there was really no secret to it. She just kind of had the magic touch. So we're going to hear some different clips about her throughout her career there, reflecting on her career there at Fender. And uh, it'll be interesting if you can kind of picture her and stuff like that. At the time of the interview, she was still working with Fender. And didn't she just retire only recently? That's correct. 
So it's pretty impressive to have that long of a career. Uh, so we're going to start with her experience getting hired at Fender. George Fullerton hired me. And uh, I was first, uh, he took me to um, the machine shop. And he had me grinding frets with uh, necks, uh, different size frets. He put them in little uh, tin containers, little cans and the different sizes, and uh, we grind them and soap them, and all day. So I didn't, I was there maybe a couple of months, and then I asked to be transferred going to the main uh, assembly. So, and it wasn't until about 1958 that I started, you know, winding pickups. What was um, that like? Um, working there, to me, all of it was not really like a job. I just, it was, it was fun. It was, uh, was relaxed, it was not strict, nobody ever, there was hardly any rules. More or less you did, as long as you did your job, you could talk, get up and talk. On hot days we'd take our shoes off and we'd run barefooted in there. Um, good, it was nice. What was Leo like? Leo? Leo was, he was like, like a worker, like one of us working. He's always, always there working. Uh, was, uh, he kind of reminded, at first I didn't know who he was. I kind of thought he was like a maintenance man. He had a bunch of keys and always in his khakis. And I found out who he was, and he was really nice, really nice. Christmas time, he would take a big wheelbarrow and fill it with candy with cigarettes and candy bars and gum, um, and just wheel it past everybody's station. Wish everybody good holidays. So it was nice. We'd have Christmas parties, talent shows. Um, get-togethers at, at different houses. Like Bill Carson used to like to have, have us go to his house for parties. It was fun. It was fun back then. And what was it like? Because if you, you were there in 56, so you, really, you were there for the, the popularity boost. You know, when Buddy Holly and those guys started uh -huh. playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Uh, it was, it was, to, to us it was, it was great. We had this uh, um, a City at Night, this TV show they used to have back then. They came and they filmed us in, at night. And uh, that was, that was exciting. Uh, and uh, we started picking up a lot of production. Couldn't believe how much more work we were, we were putting out. Uh, Leo always said that his guitar was the Cadillac of guitars. That's what, that's what he used to say. And we thought it was true. We'd go to a, a, a dance or a party and we're always looking for our guitars. It was neat. You had pride in what you were doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. We did. In the custom shop, I have a, 
a smaller coil winder, but I wind by hand in the custom shop. Um, Just like the old days. <laughs> the machine is more modern. It's not a sewing machine motor. Um, but yeah, it's hand wound, like the old days. Is there a trick to doing a hand wound? I don't think so. You just get used to doing it. <laughs> Nobody really, I don't think, maybe, uh, not too many other ladies liked running the coil winders. So, and I ran the coil winders for a long time. And then I transferred out of uh, small parts over to final. And there was no one to, they wanted to do it. They had a lot of trouble getting someone to wind. So I had to go back and run the machines again. Did you like being in the final department? I liked it, I did. Uh, it was also more money. It was a uh, higher labor grade. So what they did when they changed me back to the coil winder is they made that a higher labor grade so that I could go back and do it. Oh, so you didn't have to lose any money? No. Oh, that was good. Mm -hmm. What sort of things did you do in the final department? Uh, I would put the hardware on the bodies, the bridge and the strap buttons, uh, the pick guards, control plates, all that. I like doing that. So I like the people I was working with over here. So. Do you play guitar? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we were making the pianos, Harold Rhodes, um, I took piano lessons for that. So. Did you do assembly for that? No, not the pianos. So, I mean, all in all, it's been fun. Time has gone by so fast. Even now, I can't believe it's been so long. Do you have any uh, good stories about Leo or, or working in the early days that, that you'd like to tell? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Not really, it's just our telling parties were fun. If you had a talent, you just go up there and do your thing. I never did. I was too you were too, too shy. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you what you did. No. What did Freddie do? Ukulele? Yeah, he's ukulele. And did Leo participate in those? He was there, but he never, like me, he never. <laughs> did anything, sing or dance. George used to sing, good. Him and this other lady that worked there had a duet. Yes, it's always wonderful to hear from uh, Abigail. I could uh, sit down and listen to her stories all day and uh, many people wish they could. Uh, she's retired now, so uh, we're very blessed to have this interview as part of our collection. And um, again, something that we can go back to time and again. Uh, to learn from. So it's really neat. We're starting really to put some puzzle pieces together here on Leo Fender. And um, a couple of comments that I just wanted to make is uh, Leo has another place in the in our hearts here at NAM 
um, because uh, when he passed away in, in uh, 1991, it was really a somber time. Uh, the NAM board got together and said that they really wanted to do something to preserve our history because when someone like Leo passes away, he really does take a lot of history with him. And that was really the beginning of the oral history program, which uh, has been my dream job for the last 18 or 19 years. Um, and Leo had a lot to do with it, just representing what he represented. And I'm really grateful for the NAM board for getting together and saying, hey, you know, we got to do something about this and preserve this history. It's also neat to reflect on the many people who have talked about going to the NAM shows over the years and seeing Leo sitting in a booth. I never met the man, but I can just picture, uh, you know, a, 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 a chair, you know, sitting in a booth. Uh, talking to anybody and everybody who would walk by and ask them questions. And, um, and so it was a, a, a neat opportunity, I think, uh, for many people to have that uh, chance at an AM show. The other thing I wanted to mention is just a few other folks that we have interviewed that uh, worked with Leo, knew Leo, or part of the Fender story that have also been uh, part of our collection that you can check out uh, that I hadn't mentioned earlier. Uh, one was a guy named Bob Perrine, who was the ad man is starting in the late 1950s. And for those of you who remember the uh, very iconic Fender ads uh, during the 50s and 60s, uh, this was Bob's uh, brainchild. Uh, so, for example, the surfer coming in uh, on the beach playing a uh, Stratocaster, uh, that was a picture taken by Bob. And um, many advertisements really helped uh, develop a, uh, an audience for the products, and Bob is really to be thanked for that. Uh, we also interviewed uh, Jim Crosshank, who was in charge of... Um, uh, advertising for Fender, who went on to help uh, develop all of the very famous now um, NAM booths during the uh, 1960s and 70s. And then a little bit later on, as the company was sold, uh, there was a whole team of people who came in to bring back uh, Fender after CBS owned the company. And we're talking about uh, Bill Schultz and Dan Smith. Uh, folks like that, we've been uh, very blessed to interview a lot of those guys as well. Uh, Don DJ Johnson and Ed Rizzuto, just to name a few. Oh, uh, Roger Cox, who's been a big help to us, uh, also helped design their amplifiers. So as you can tell, we are trying to cover this story from a lot of different angles. And once you sort of open up the can of worms, uh, it can lead to a lot of different, very fascinating stories and, and characters for sure. And speaking of that, I think one of the characters that we're going to talk about next is... Phyllis Fender. So Leo's wife. And who better to have a unique perspective on what the man was like than the person who married him? Even though his Parkinson was uh, very troublesome to him and limited him in a lot of things that he could do, uh, every day up until the day that he died, uh, someone from his office would come and wait, would take him in a wheelchair and he'd go down and spend a few hours and then come home. Hmm. And, uh, but he wanted to be there. He, that, was, that was his joy. That was, these were his babies he was creating. This is the family he never had. And, and it was, he was just more joyous there than any place. 
course, I can't understand why you wouldn't be happy at home with me and the dogs and the cats and the birds and the fish. <laughs> but it. Um, uh, so no. he didn't really have a hobby then. His, uh, his two things that. I think probably the company came first, and I was down here on the list a little ways further, but he loved new cameras, loved cameras, and loved new cars. So those were two things. Every year, he would have a new car, and many times every year, he would have two or three new cameras. Hmm. And so those were his, his diversions. Hmm. Mm -hmm. so. That's great. Mm -hmm. Do you guys uh, have any thoughts? I don't want to miss anything important. Well, I'm fascinated. Phyllis <laughs> okay. tells this the story so superbly. Uh, no, it's, yeah. she, you are very articulate. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, when you when you think back, like for example, today's your anniversary. I'm so glad that we have you on this special day. It's Wasn't so that fun? Yeah. Twenty-three years it would have been. Wow. Yeah. What do you think about? It? I mean, what sort of things that you guys do on your anniversaries? Well, he always brought me yellow roses and white daisies because those were my favorites. Whether he actually brought them or Laura Lee, his secretary, went and got them. But anyway, he did. And we would go out to dinner lots of times with my folks, um, sometimes with George and Lucille. And that was about all. He, we would not really go anyplace fancy. He loved the Sizzler, you know, and Don Jose's. Of course, those are... California places, people back east might not know who they are, but um, he didn't like to dress up, and that was okay, you know, casual's nice, and, but he, he loved to go to the system. He went to the same place every day for lunch. He liked to have basically the same thing every certain night for, during the week for dinner. Hmm, you know? right? He liked routine. He very much liked routine. He liked everything in order. And in his room, everything was in order, his, you know, everything. Um, my end of the house, I can't say that for, you know, but it looked lived in and looked happy, so that what can I say. But he did, he liked orderly life, and however that could be accomplished, you know, that, that made him happy. So that was Phyllis Fender. It's always great to hear a different perspective. I, uh, I can't help but think about Leo every time I drive by a Sizzler. Yeah, <laughs> and you hear that different, that non-work side, you know what I mean, more of a personal side. And I think a lot of times with these icons, people assume that they are all work all the time and that there is no family life, there is no social life, there is no hobbies, but uh, it's nice to see a well-rounded perspective of the guy. Yep. Well said. So, um, and so for our final clip today, for this episode, we are going to listen to George Fullerton, who was Leo's partner. He was really his right-hand man, yeah. I think, for most of his career. He's the guy who stuck with uh, Leo through the really hard times when, uh, when the company was sold, when Leo lost the use of his name. Um, and then uh, when they decided to get back in business and create a new company, G&L, uh, George is the, the G and Leo is the L. And uh, I think they really had a very strong friendship and partnership for many, many years. Uh, George was born in 1923, uh, passed away in 2009. And this is a clip from his NAM oral history interview from 2003. There wasn't such a thing as electric bass. No one had even heard of one. We hadn't even heard of one of them. But Leo, Leo wanted to build it because what Leo 
wanted to do was he, he wanted a bass that would be fretted like a guitar and so that a guitar player could pick it up and the lower four strings on that electric bass was the same as the four lower strings on the guitar except one octave lower. So we decided that, that would be a good thing. And so the name for that became precision bass. I know it's called P bass nowadays and a lot of people never heard of it. It's precision bass probably. But to build that required a lot of a lot of things to build it. And we worked very hard designing pickups, body style, the neck length was very important. And when we finally settled on the 34 inch scale of the, of the base, and we had most of the things designed for the base, we ran into a real difficult spot because there was no, that we couldn't find any strings that would fit it. And uh, you know the string makers, they made strings for many other instruments, but nothing that would fit, fit an instrument like we had. And we tried things like real fine gauge steel wire and, and bought old strings from other instruments and we tried just steel wire of different kinds and cable and we've tried everything for strings. Nothing would work on that bass. And, and even the tuners on it, the tuners. What we did, we, we bought tuners from the upright bass and in our machine shop we cut them down, all made all the parts and remade them, made them to fit, the, fit our bass. But we still had the problem of not having strings. And he and I, would that was really a problem for us. We lost sleep over that. What do we do? Now we've got, we've designed an instrument that looks like it has possibilities and no strings. Because the only thing available in strings were the so-called catgut strings that were available for the large bass. So we, we kind of sweated this out, so to speak. And finally he and I got talking about it and we said, let's try something different. So we got a set of those catgut strings and, and uh, the section, the section about an inch, place where it passed over the pole piece in the pickup, we wrapped real fine gauge steel wire on that and cemented it on with that clear cement, like airplane cement, on those strings. And when we strung that thing up and plugged it into an amplifier, we, it just knocked our hats off. It sounded so beautiful. We could not believe how beautiful that sounded. Well, thank you everyone for watching, tuning in to this episode of the podcast. How are they watching? They're, they're how, in their cars. How are you watching? <laughs> if you're watching right now, we have a problem. But thank you very much for listening. Um, we hope you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Um, and make sure to check out the uh, video interviews um, that we referenced in this podcast. You can just go to nam.org slash library and you can see the whole collection there. And from all of us here at the Music History Project, thanks for listening.